Well, good morning. As we continue this study on shepherding, shepherding is caring for people under your charge, under your oversight, by giving them the Word of God and caring for them in an empathetic fashion as you care for their, the totality of their being. We've been looking at the Apostle Paul the last few weeks as he addressed the church leaders from Ephesus in a place called Miletus and how Paul spoke of what the Lord had done in the past as you lived among them for three years. He says, I served among you with humility and with tears, and I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, anything that was profitable for you. And last week, we talked how the Apostle Paul is looking forward to what is coming, and he gives his purpose statement in verse 24, where he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the course the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And then three supporting beliefs that undergirded that purpose statement. That number one is that he was compelled by the Holy Spirit or pushed by the Holy Spirit, prodded by the Holy Spirit. Number two, that uh, he, he committed his tomorrows to the Lord. He said, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but in essence, I know who holds tomorrow. And then number three, that he says, I live in a world of battles and blessings and trials and heartaches await me as I go to Jerusalem. But he says, in essence, that's okay because in this fallen world of battles and blessings, the ultimate cry is victory by the Lord Christ and heaven awaits me. And so we come now to a portion of this address where he gives a general overcharge to the leaders at Ephesus, these men who've been appointed to watch themselves and the church. And if you're a mom or a dad or a community group leader or a teacher or a deacon or an elder or on pastoral staff, or, or if you've been a Christian for two months, then you have the responsibility of living out the reality of Christ to those who are coming behind you or who are under your charge. So this is what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert." Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And I say this morning, church, that, that, that as we study this, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that can build you up and give you hope and a place among those who are saved and going forward in the name of Christ. And that, that's, that's Paul's charge to us. So let's, let's pray and ask God to bless this. God, we are your people, and we ask now that you, by the Spirit's power, 
would take the word of God and make application to our lives. Come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as we come to this, uh, the, the first thing I want to say is that all of this is layered over with this concept. Paul said, I didn't hesitate from declaring to you anything that would be profitable or good or advantageous for your souls. And as, as we come to the living God, we come to him, we say, God, you are glorious and you're good and you're eternal and you're unchanging and you're triune and you're majestic and you're everywhere present and you're all-knowing and you are God and you are good. And, and, and you have given us a word that is that which will give us, as we obey it, a future and a hope and purpose and dignity and, and a sense of well-being. So, so we come to the Lord saying, Lord, you are good. We glory in you. We want to go forward because, because you are gloriously good. I think of John 15 where Jesus says in verse 11, My joy I give you that your, that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. I think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 where he says that, that physical discipline is okay. It gives limited profit. But godliness is profitable for all things because it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. I think of Psalm 19 where the psalmist says about the word of God. He says, says by them, the promises of God, the word of God, by them is your servant warned in keeping them, there is great reward. Or Jesus' comment in John chapter 8, if you abide in my word, obey it, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So I, I, just, I just glory in the fact that God's word is advantageous, profitable, gives us a place to stand. That's why Paul says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. And so as, as we look at God and the word of his grace this morning, I want to make some comments about general shepherding. And number one is this. Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. To shrink back means to pull back or, or depart from that which has been taught. Paul says, I, I didn't shrink back. And, and the way error happens is that you just bit by bit by bit by bit pull back. And Paul said, for three years, I laid it out. I didn't shrink back. I told you the truth. I went house to house. You know my heart. You know my MO. This is who I was. Let me give an example of a man who shrunk back. This man's name is Ludwig Mueller. Mueller. Ludwig Mueller was a Lutheran pastor in Germany. In 1933, he'd been involved in the Nazi movement, and so Hitler looked for somebody to be head of the German church, the Aryan church, and so they chose Ludwig Mueller, and Ludwig Mueller fell in line, and he shrunk back. They removed crosses from churches and put in swastikas. Ludwig Mueller went around Germany saying, what you've been told is a lie, that the Christian church has nothing to do with Jewish origins. And I'm going to go... Really, you said that? But just one question, was Jesus a Jew? Was the, were the apostles Jews? I mean, he was just stupid. But he fell in line. He talked about Adolf Hitler being their Messiah. But there were others who did not fall in line. It was called the Confessing Church. They did not shrink back. Let me show you this man. This man's name is Martin Neimuller. Martin Neimuller was a, uh, in World War I, was a submarine 
captain for the German Navy, and he behaved so valiantly that he received the Iron Cross, which is somewhat the equivalent of the Medal of Honor. Highly decorated, esteemed. When Hitler came to power, he stood up and he said, Jesus Christ is our authority, not the National Socialist Movement. Jesus Christ is Lord, not Adolf Hitler. And so Hitler himself ordered that Neymar be in prison. He was in prison for eight years. The last four years of his imprisonment, he was in a place called Dachau. After eight years, he was liberated. And two years later, he was invited to preach at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he gave an address. I'm just going to read two paragraphs. It was a, a sermon entitled, The Word of God is Not Bound, based on 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I've suffered all types of things for the sake of God's called out people, but the Word of God is not bound. This is what Martin Neimuer said. He said, We must remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That was the one thing which Adolf Hitler did not remember. That was really the one thing which he did not believe in. And this, not believing that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, has become his fatal destiny. He thought of Christ as many people all over the world do as a great man of bygone times. He thought of Christ as a man like one other of the prophets or a man like the Buddha or Muhammad a man who was and is dead for nearly 2,000 years, but Jesus is risen from the dead, and his word is not bound. We've had this horrible experience in Germany. We have seen and lived and suffered through this cataclysmic war, but the word of God is not bound, and it never has been bound because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and is the living Lord of life, a living voice which cannot be silenced by any earthly power, including Adolf Hitler, even in spheres of incredible influence like prisons and concentration camps, the word of God is not bound. And he talks about how I was in solitary confinement for three years, and he would stand each morning on a stool and peer out of his little barred window, and as men walked around the compound, he would just say time after time scripture verses and just preach the Bible, and how he would just glory in Christ and how in his church, he says, they took me, the pastors that were left started preaching. When they took the pastors, the, le- the lay leaders came forward. They took all the lay leaders. The women came forward. They took the, the women. My son came forward at age 15 and started preaching the gospel every Sunday until he went into the German army and was killed the last week of the war. But he said, the word of God is not bound. And he rejoiced in that. He didn't shrink back. This man did not shrink back. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, hung in April, executed April 1945, just weeks before the end of the war. So that, that, that's, that's the legacy of faith. You don't shrink back. This happened to me this morning, so just kind of fresh for the early service. I was walking the halls. There was this very gracious, kind young woman walking the hall, and I said, I'm sorry, have I met you? And she said, well, I don't know why she said, but sometimes I meet people four and five times. I'm sorry, it just happens. And uh, she said, I, I, my grandmother wants you me to, rem- to introduce myself as my granddad's granddaughter, and she mentioned the name. And I stopped, and I just 
this, this was a dear man that died about 15 or so years ago. He was in a Bible study class we had here for several years that I taught. And every Lord's Day and throughout the week, he would encourage and encourage and encourage me. And I grabbed her and hugged her and says, I love you for your granddaddy. I love you for your granddaddy. Nothing else for your granddaddy. It's a legacy of faith. He didn't shrink back. Now, I'm going to give you an example. And I'm going to lose some of you here, but just bear with me and don't think I've lost, lost it, okay? But just bear with me. Our authority is the Bible, the Lordship of Jesus. I loved Frozen, okay, Frozen. If you saw Frozen, raise your hand, okay? Everybody in the gym is raising their hand. Um, if you have a child that's under 10, you have seen Frozen probably multiple times. I liked Frozen, so don't misunderstand me when I say this. But, but there's a song in Frozen that I love entitled, Let It Go. Now, I heard it four or five times, and I, I thought she was saying, let it snow, you know, but she was saying, let it go. And um, I, I, I just didn't pick up the words. But recently, I saw something, I started reading the words, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a song, beautiful song, written by a woman who's, who's just, the man, woman who wrote says, I'm an avowed radical feminist. I said, okay, that's fine, God's common grace, a lot of people do great things, and this is a great song. But listen to the words. This is where it kind of set me on edge, and listen, parents, enjoy Frozen. I'm not down on Frozen, okay? Just don't even say, trust him, man, he hates Frozen. You know, he's out, he's out to get Elsa, you know, that type of thing. So let me just read the words. Elsa sings, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now that's the cry of uh, autonomous individualism. I'm free. She says, let it go, let it go. I'm the one, I am one with the wind and the sky. Well, first of all, I've got some problems with that. That's pantheism, but let's not go there. I'm one with the wind and the sky. Let it go, let it go. You'll never see me cry. And then she says this. Here I stand, and here I'll stay, let the storm rage on. Now, what, what really ticked me, what really got me is, here I stand. I went, whoa. Here I stand, autonomous individualism. Here I stand was uttered in 1521 by a guy, by a guy wearing a monk's robe named Martin Luther. A place called the Diet of Worms. Before the crown prince of the Holy Roman Empire and all the other leaders of that part of the world. And Luther's, they said, Luther, you've got to recant. When you say that the, the Pope can err and counsel, councils can err, you've got to recant that. And, and, and Luther stood there without a bodyguard, much less an army. He was wearing a monk's robe, came there on, the, on an ox cart. And he said, my heart is captive to the word of God. To sin against the word of God or conscience is not right. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen thinking he was going to be taken down the back and just killed, but he wasn't. So when, when, when Elsa says, here I stand, I'm thinking, mm, here I stand on autonomous individual freedom. No, here I stand on the word of God. Here I stand. And, and so if, if, if we're going to be the people God has called us to be, we cannot shrink back. We must be people of conviction and courage. And secondly, we've got to be, pay careful attention to ourselves and then to the church. In this passage, Paul says, be very careful to pay attention to yourselves and then to the church. And he says this in 1 Timothy, be diligent in these matters. This is how you pay attention, okay? You be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. 
Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. So, so somebody says, well, how, how, how do we guard ourselves? Here's the answer. You're diligent. You're, you're diligent in, in knowing the Bible and thinking the Bible and meditating on the Bible and make an application to, to your life as you plead for God to let you see the beauty of Jesus. You're diligent. And you're diligent in such a way that as people walk with you year after year and they have conversations with you, that, that, that they can see your progress, that you're grappling, you're thinking, you're trying to make application, that you don't just stay where you are. You've got to watch yourself because if you do, you'll say both yourselves and your hearers. You have incredible responsibility. You're called to be a diligent person, and eternity hangs in the balance. So we're diligent. We, we watch ourselves. See, when Paul says watch yourself, it's not like you're watching a, 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 a potato bin at a day camp where some kids are going to make a raid to try to get potatoes to win a game. You're diligent because eternity is at stake. Now I went to the Citadel. I love the Citadel. When I was there, it may have changed some, we had to guard, stand guard at, at Lasane Gate, which is the main gate going to the Citadel. And really it was to build discipline in our lives. Because I was on guard many times there, and, and, and you just, a car comes up and you wave them through. And if it's an officer, you salute. But you, it's just to build discipline. You stand there for four hours trying to you know, be, be orderly. I mean, really, somebody could have driven in with rocket launchers on their Jeep, and I'd have gone. You know, it's not a highly trained position of influence, okay? <clears throat> but if the President of the United States was making the address of the Citadel, you'd be on lockdown. And to get in, you'd have guard dogs, you'd have mirrors under the car, you'd have people searching your trunk, you'd have metal detectors as you got out of your car because it's high alert. See, a lot of us live like we're at Lasane Gate. It's no big deal when you're, you should be on high alert. I think of these parents with these babies that are just glorious, high alert. I think of your marriages, high alert. I think of your legacy, high alert. It's interesting, Paul, if you read New Testament overviews, some people call the church at Thessalonica Paul's favorite church. And one, one reason because he writes them in, they're just doing well. They have questions about the second coming, but, but people call him, this his favorite church. And yet, this is what he writes to, this his favorite church. He's saying, don't stand still, be on high alert. Listen, <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, Paul says, now, now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound. He said, you're a great church. You're wonderful people, but I don't, don't increase and abound. Next chapter, he says, finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you Receive from us how you ought to live and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. You're doing, you're doing well, but do it more and more. Don't rest satisfied. Eternity is at stake. And again, he says in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, uh, 
verse 9 says, now, now concerning brotherly love, you need for no one to write to you about brotherly love because you've been taught of God. And you're doing this so well, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. And he talks about sexual ethics. And he says this in chapter 5, but since we belong to the day, we are alert, basically. We belong to the day. Let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. He says, church at Thessalonica, you go for it. In the Uniform Code of Military Justice, Article 113 says this. Any sentinel or lookout who is found drunk or sleeping upon his post or leaves it before he is regularly relieved shall be punished. If the offense is committed in time of war by death or such other punishment as a court-martial may direct. It says if, if you're at the guard post guarding your fellow soldiers or airmen or sailors and you go to sleep or you get drunk and you're derelict, the punishment is death. And I, I look at us and it's so easy to go through life not realizing the contours of dest and destiny of eternity. We cannot sleep. We have a charge to keep. And so Paul says you, you guard yourselves, and then after you guard yourselves, you care for the church with doctrinal insight and brokenness. And then he gives warnings, and the warnings will just, maybe sometime later, but verses 29 to 31, he says, I warn you, beware that errors will come from the outside that will try to plummet and destroy the church, and there'll be erroneous teachings from within that will twist truth, and try, they'll try to turn people away from the reality of God. He says, you be careful. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week, I want to talk to you about a preferable future. In the Wall Street Journal this week, there was a statement about the, the power of pictures. They quoted a, a, a history professor from Rice University named Douglas Brinkley who said, once in a while, an image breaks through the noisy, cluttered global culture and it hits people in the heart and not the head. So I want to talk to you about images and hope and guarding yourselves, and guarding the church. Let me give you some pictures. Some of them happened in my life. This one happened a few years before me. December the 7th, 1941, a day that will what? Live in infamy. The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and killed 2,500 people. 1,177 on the USS Arizona. 1,000. 177. And doing research, I didn't realize this, but there were 23 sets of brothers who died that day. In those days when you joined the Navy, you said, well, I'd like to serve here, but I want my brother to be with me. They say, that's fine. 23 sets of brothers died. Imagine being a parent. 
this picture happened when I was in the fourth grade, November 22nd, 1963. A handsome young president got into a car in Dallas, Texas with his wife, beautiful young woman wearing a, a pink suit. Remember that? And he was killed in the streets of Dallas, Texas. I'll never forget that day. And then a few days later, the nation wept, and his little boy, John John, saluted his dad's casket as it came by. Never forget. Not long ago, this happened. 9-11. I think that picture should be on everybody's refrigerator so we would not forget. It's easy to forget. Almost 3,000 people perished. The jihadist. Let me also give you pictures that give you a sense of pride and remembrance. This happened in August of 1945 in Tokyo Bay. Douglas MacArthur accepted the surrender of the Imperial Army, Navy, and Air Force of Japan. What's interesting about this picture, there's a man in the background, I don't know which one he is, a, a general called Jonathan Wainwright, who just spent four years in a Japanese POW camp, and he was so emaciated he could barely stand up, but he wanted to be there. And MacArthur wanted him there. And that same day that that happened, this photograph was taken that all of us have seen time after time. It's happened in Times Square, New York. A sailor grabbed an unsuspecting young woman and laid one on her. And that was on, in every newspaper in the world the next day. Also in 1963, August of 1963, at the Lincoln Memorial, this man gave an address entitled, I Have a Dream. And I, I'm going to read two paragraphs. This is Martin Luther King. And it's, it really it celebrates the American experience. It's wonderful. We ought to read this speech frequently because it's filled with scripture. And letter from Birmingham jail. But anyway, we refuse, he says, to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Later he says, but there is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then he closes with an extended quote from the book of Amos. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every Hill and mountains shall be made low, and the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. It's a great moment. This moment, you may say, really? But let me explain it. 
This is 1980. The Miracle on Ice. Now, if you were, many of you weren't alive in 1980. And you, so you say 1980. Was George Washington alive in 1980? He was not, okay? I was. I was a young man. I was in Texas going to seminary. I loved the Olympics, and I was, watch, I, I was watching our Olympic ice hockey team, and they got to the semifinal round. They're playing the Soviet Union. Now, listen, I, did, I said, I'm not going to watch. I'm not going to watch. Because, because the Soviet Union had just beat the National Hockey League All-Stars six to nothing. It's All-Stars. They played this group of college kids, average, average 21 years of age. Eight of them were Golden Gophers from the University of Minnesota. They played them two weeks before, and they won 12 to three. Now, listen, winning in ice hockey 12 to three is like winning in football 77 to three. It's just embarrassing. And so I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to watch it because it's just going to be bad. And so I did the ultimate. I went shopping. <laughs> in retrospect, shopping is even worse than watching the Soviet Union win in ice hockey. But that was beside the point. We were out in Dallas shopping. I'll never forget this. You've got to remember, 1980 was a low point for our country. Iran hostage crisis. Inflation was at 12%. Unemployment, I think, was 13%. It was just tough hard. I'm riding down the streets of Dallas, and all of a sudden, people start blowing their horns. People are waving on the sidewalks, high-fiving, or whatever they did back then, you know, throwing stone tablets at each other. I don't know, high-fiving. And I thought, what's going on? And I turned on the radio, and the announcer couldn't catch his breath. He said, they did it. They did it. They beat the Soviet Union. I said, unbelievable. Unbelievable. We beat the evil empire, and it was. Okay? It was. Pride, joy. So, so, see, but part of following the Lord is understanding He offers us a preferable future, and He wants to use us. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. None of the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare, to give you a future and a hope, not calamity. So, so, a, a preferable future. Let me show you one thing I want to say to you as you live your life out. See what God is doing. Ask God, God, let me see. For example, in this hour, we have 120 middle school kids studying the Bible out there. We have 100 plus senior high kids studying the Bible right now. And listen, you go into the middle school room and you look around, and it's easy to be discouraged because middle schoolers have not changed since I was a middle schooler. They're just, they're just middle schoolers. They're just, they're, they're just middle school. But let me tell you something. In 15 and 20 years, those are your leaders. Those are your leaders. To so say, God, do not let me see a, a, a sixth grader who cannot pay attention. Let me see a man or a woman of God who will march under the banner of Jesus and represent you in law or medicine or homemaking or journalism or whatever. And I think one thing Satan does is he, he makes us live in the present moment and, and, and doesn't let us see the future. Your life counts and those who go behind you count. And so when you see somebody walking down the hall and they're kind of stooped and they're going at a slow gate and they're old, just stop and say, thank God for a legacy of faith that this person has lived out decade after decade after decade after decade. So let me show you some very encouraging things very quickly. This guy, he's 50 years old now. He's a professor of theology at Wheaton College in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he's written several books. One uh, on a guy named Abraham Kuyper. 
His name is Vince Baycoat. Vince, African-American, came to our church as a freshman cadet, was here his whole cadet experience, came here as a pre-vet major. His second year, he thought maybe he should go into theology, received his PhD, and he's just a wonderful man. Cadet. Raised here. This couple, I won't tell you their names because of sensitivity, but she was raised in this church. They met in high school in the ministry of this church, went to College of Charleston, studied classical languages as a major, um, nurtured here, married here. Now they live in the Middle East, and they're in charge of Bible translation and language development for all of the international board missionaries in the Middle East. What a, what a calling. What a wonderful young woman, a wonderful man. All the young, I think they're 36, 38. This guy, I could have used his brother. He and his brother both outstanding. Uh, this guy's 40. He's a professor at Biola University, professor of theology. Uh, I knew him as a child. In fact, um, when he was in the seventh grade, we laugh about this all the time. When he was in the seventh grade, they were having a lock-in at our church. Now, if you know what a lock-in was, it was developed in the halls of hell. Um, a lock-in is when you go to the church and you're a young person and you lock the door at 7 o'clock and you don't get out until 7 o'clock in the morning and you stay up all night eating sugar and going absolutely crazy. I don't know who came up with that. It was bad. I did it several times. It is horrible to live through. So we had a lock-in and we had a part-time high school minister named Ken, Ken Vickery. And so I'm at home and my phone rings at 2.30 in the morning. And Ken says, Buster, we got a problem. I said, well, I said, I cannot control these boys. <laughs> he says, you got to come down here. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to tear the church down. And so I go down there, and there's a group of seventh grade boys that were just, you know, Braveheart. Freedom! You know, they were just going crazy. And so I go in there, and I'm, it's 2.30 in the morning. I don't like to be woken up at 2.30 in the morning. And I read them the riot act. I mean, I laid into them. Oh, it was a thing of beauty. <laughs> and, and right at the end of it, I said, and by the way, guys, some of you call me Buster. I am not Buster. I am Pastor Brown. You should give honor to me or my office. I don't care, but you, you just don't ever call me Buster again. True story. These guys have, are all accomplished. I'll see them now. And they'll say to me, how you doing, Pastor Brown? <laughs> and I'll say to them, no, just call me Buster. Thank you, Pastor Brown. I mean, <laughs> I put the fear of God in them. I'm telling you. But, but so, so when you see seventh grade boys, just go, wow. This guy. He's just become our campus outreach regional director, Matt Reagan. Wonderful guy. My second summer here, we had a church softball team, the greatest church softball team in the history of softball. And we had a little boy running around in diapers, diapers, crawling against the backstop, walking around in the mud, delightful kid who still has a lot of energy, but is focused for Jesus. And I look at these stories and I go, God, do not let me just see middle schoolers or high schoolers or college. Let me see men and women who are oaks of righteousness. So, so I come now to this appeal, and I'm going to do it real quickly. We're going to be bringing before you, you've heard some of it, uh, our, our building program. We're in the middle of this building program to build a sanctuary and to dedicate this room to our contemporary worship, to have offices and classrooms. And this is an artist's rendition of um, 
what we're doing at the outside. We want to build a, a, a welcome center, a common area for people to meet. And we told you we need to raise $1.3 million in new monies because we don't want to go into a minimal amount of debt. And so we're, we're asking people to, to participate and, um, and, and, and really for this, to, our, our, so far we haven't raised the monies we want. We want the monies to be raised, or we have a kind of an indicator by early October or at the latest by the end of December. So we're just, we're just going to make the appeal and say, here it is. And there are people sitting here who have the ability, you've been blessed of God, and you have the ability to, to really give. All of us should give, but, but there's going to have to be some sacrificial giving. And I, I don't want you to see this as just a building. I want you to see this as a building where people will be sharpened to preach the gospel of Jesus in every area of our culture. I want you to see this as, as a place of nurturing, at a place where the saints will be married and we will celebrate the death of men and women and the Lord and we'll have conferences and receptions and teachings and it's, and it's going to help encourage our school here, our Palmetto Christian Academy, on and on and on. And it's painstakingly been thought through. But we need for God's people to respond. We didn't hire a fundraiser to come in and do this. We just said, we're going to make an appeal. So we're making an appeal. There are people here that can get rid of certain things and give a lot of money. And even if you're just starting out, give. I believe tithing is biblical. The first fruits of what you get, you give to the Lord to honor Him to make a statement about discipleship. And we're asking people to give sacrificially here. So pray about that. Go and pray, pray with your family. Say, well, what should we do? What's God calling us to do? God's blessed us to be a blessing. God's blessed us and called us unto himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day, and uh, thank you for the, the gift of the Bible. Thank you that we can read Paul's emotive, embraceive charge to the elders at Ephesus and make application to our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we'll be able to look at those around us and say, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I spoke the truth. I pray that we would guard ourselves and then guard our marriages or our families or our friends or our church or our community group. We would guard ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that we would soberly live understanding the warnings of errors from without that will seek to usurp the authority of Jesus and of twisted things that will be said within. So God, give us hearts that are on, on mission with you. So blessed be your name. God, use us this week. This week, use us as we celebrate the goodness of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.